Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to another edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Network. Right now, I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Happy Star Wars Day to all. May the 4th be with you. It is May 4th. A lot of Star Wars content to talk about today. Primarily, it'll today's episode is going to be a lot of recaps of The Last Dance, the season finale of Westworld. But of course, like I said at the top, it's May the 4th, Star Wars Day. A lot of recaps and news to get to in a galaxy far, far away. And the first thing off the top that I want to talk about is breaking news that happened a few hours ago in celebration of Star Wars Day. Lucasfilm announced on StarWars.com that Taika Waititi, the director who has been with Disney, directed Thor Ragnarok and directed the season finale of last year's The Mandalorian, will direct and co-write a brand new film in the galaxy far, far away. He will be writing alongside Christy Wilson Cairns, who is a writer on the Academy Award nominated film, and she got an Academy Award nomination herself for the screenplay of 1917. She also worked on the brand new Edgar Wright film, The Last Night in Soho. There's been no announced release date as of yet. However, when you look at the release dates for the next few Star Wars films, you have December 22nd, 2022, you have December of 2024, and December of 2026, so there's been a lot of announcements when it comes to the films. We, of course, have the Kevin Feige-produced film that's in the works, and now we have this brand new Taika Waititi film, and there's no surprise to hear this announcement whatsoever. With the relationship that Waititi has with Lucasfilm, with Disney, with his work with Marvel Studios, he's involved full-time with that family now, and even so much so that Jojo Rabbit, which was a part of Searchlight Pictures now, is involved in the Disney circle, so he's basically a full-time Disney employee when you look at the track record he's had so far, but also when you look at the, the merits, he's an Academy Award winner, he won last year for Best Adapted Screenplay with Jojo Rabbit, which is an, a tremendous achievement. He also was incredible in creating indie films that some people know about so this makes complete sense and when you look at the finale that he did with star wars it blended that humor in the mandalorian alongside the emotional storytelling along with great action set pieces and it's funny that before this news broke i was watching the docuseries that just came out on disney plus to celebrate may the 4th of the mandalorian and i'll talk about that in a little bit but Hearing about his time being a part of that set, it sounds like he fit right in. He was having a lot of fun. It was a collaborative effort. And so to hear Tycho working with Christy Kearns, who worked on 1917, blending in a wartime writer who knows that kind of area, along with the sci-fi comedy action that Waititi can bring to a movie, it's a match made in heaven. So I'm excited to see where this leads. Hopefully this is the... Last time we'll hear about any any kind of news other than more development news with this film. Hopefully there's no behind-the-scenes turmoil that's happening and Taika Waititi's leaving in the next few months or weeks. Hopefully this is something that is absolutely certain, which I think it will be because, again, he's had a relationship with not just Lucasfilm but with Disney Marvel Studios, so he knows the company. He knows what that set is like, what that company's viewership is of what they want to do with all their properties, working with John Favreau, Dave Filoni. He has an idea of where they're going with Lucasfilm in the direction of the galaxy far, far away. So I'm excited about this. This is great news to hear. This is also news that's not surprising because it was reported by The Hollywood Reporter that Taika Waititi was in talks to be a part of a Star Wars film. It wasn't really clear if he was going to direct, but 
he was going to be developing a new Star Wars film, and Lucasfilm just confirmed it today, while also confirming news that came out a few weeks ago in which Leslie Headland, who co-created The Russian Doll on Netflix, is going to be showrunning, producing, and writing a brand new Star Wars show in the same line on Disney+, Plus, like Cassie Andor, Mandalorian, and the new Obi-Wan show that'll be hitting in the next few years. So a lot of reconfirmation or supported official confirmation from the studio behind Star Wars on a lot of news that we were hearing over the last few weeks and months, and we finally get the official confirmation from Lucasfilm. And to me, this this wonders if we get all this news from different tabloids, and if it comes from Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Collider, Entertainment Weekly, Vanity Fair with Anthony Bresden, that it seems to fall in line that in all likelihood those stories are actually happening, they're actually true, and to me it seems like Lucasfilm doesn't really want to come out with anything until they're absolutely certain with what they're doing, and I think if Star Wars Celebration still happens in some capacity, I don't think we're going to be getting a full-on convention, even though it is taking place in August due to the the restrictions, especially one of the last things that'll probably be open up is mass gatherings when it comes to sporting events or convention visits as well. And San Diego Comic-Con canceled in late July. And even though Star Wars Celebration is happening in late August, I wouldn't be surprised if it's canceled. And if it does so, will Lucasfilm do something online to get people involved and maybe announce some new projects or really officially confirm when certain releases are going to be happening, who's working on what projects. Because, again, like I said at the top, it's it's great that Tyga's working on this with Christy Kearns, but if we don't know specifically what he's going to be working on, what timeline is, is this new Star Wars film going to be taking place? Is it going to be taking place before the Age of the Republic, before the prequels? Is it going to be taking place between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy? Is it going to be taking place after the sequel trilogy from The Rise of Skywalker? We don't know those details yet, and it's not fair to say that we know when those details are going to happen because with Taika, this isn't going to be his next full-on project. He still has to work, and he's working on Thor Love and Thunder right now, and the next Star Wars project is feature film project is coming out on December 22nd of 2022, with Thor Love and Thunder happening on February 11th of 2022, so again, when I talk about directors, producers, writers, it's not like actors where you work on one film shoot and that's it. A director stays with a project from the very beginning of its inception when they're hired on, and then they go through photography, whether it's a huge, big-budgeted production, then you're with it until two years in, and then you have the premiere, you have to do the press line, so you're with a film for almost two, two and a half years, maybe, if it's a big feature production, like is going to be doing with Thor Love and Thunder, so if I had to guess, we're probably, if YTD's film does come out, it probably won't be until either that 2024 or 2026 one of those two release dates if they don't go a full trilogy route or maybe they do and they're adding all these different pieces into it. There's a lot of questions that come with this announcement, but the fact, face value that you have Taika Waititi coming on to do a Star Wars movie is not surprising whatsoever because of his background and what he's been able to do with Thor Ragnarok and making that a very cool space opera sci-fi adventure. But what he was able to do in the Star Wars world with The Mandalorian, I think just gets people more excited to see what he can bring to a feature-length film that encompasses new planets, new worlds, new characters within Taika Waititi's realm. 
What do you guys think about this news regarding Taika directing and writing, co-writing a brand new Star Wars film? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts down below. Two other Star Wars recaps that I want to get into right now. This is, of course, May the 4th, and Disney Lucasfilm did a very smart thing, and because of COVID-19, they can't really announce brand new toy lines. They can announce new toy lines, but you can't go to the stores to buy. You can't order video games online. And so the next best thing to do is films and television and streaming. And so Disney made the incredibly smart decision to put two shows on May the 4th. You had the series finale of Clone Wars, which I'll talk about in a little bit, and you have the brand new behind-the-scenes docuseries on the making of The Mandalorian, eight-part documentary that premiered today. And it really focuses on, again, the behind-the-scenes of what went on to create the phenomenon that was the first season of The Mandalorian. And the first episode focuses on the directors, all five directors that were a part of creating The Mandalorian and the the different experiences they all, they all had. And it was a roundtable that featured the creator and showrunner, John Favreau, Dave Filoni, Rick Femiua, Deborah Chow, Bryce Dallas Howard, Taika Waititi, and they really talked about all their experiences of coming to set every single day and working on Star Wars for their specific amount of time. And I really enjoyed this first episode of the creation of this television show. And I think it's smart to have the directors be the first thing you talk about because they're the ones that are bringing this vision to life. They're the ones that had the creative aspects of creating each every individual episode that left a different mark each episode. Every single episode of The Mandalorian in its first season was a different kind of genre, a different kind of 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 scenario that was happening. You had the first three episodes kind of be this journey for The Mandalorian and the child, and then the fourth episode was kind of this seventh samurai kind of save the town, and then you have the sixth episode be a heist film, and then you end the seventh and eighth episode explaining the overarching story of what The Mandalorian is. And so I think every single person was able to bring their different talents and aspects and creative influence on each and every single one of these episodes under the tutelage of Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni. And it really showed the chemistry between every single one of these directors in that even though they were working on their own episode, it was an entire collaborative effort that happened with every single one of these directors. You would see Bryce Dallas Howard on with Deborah Chow during the making of her episodes, and then you would see Taika Waititi with Deborah Chow on her episodes, and you would see all these different directors come together and work with one another. And the first director they talk about is Dave Filoni, who's also creator with Jon Favreau on this show. And we all know him to be the person that is a great animated director, animation creator, who did Clone Wars, Rebels, Resistance. And it goes into his background and how he first was introduced to George Lucas. And it's a very funny story that he tells that takes up his portion of the segment of of, of what his of talking about Dave Filoni. But you also get to see that he is growing as a director and that he is somebody who is learning 
and taking cues from all these other experienced television and feature film directors. Rick Famuyiwa isn't a television director. He's a feature film director. And so for him, it was different for him to come into place and work on a show like this. And then for Deborah Chow, who has worked on television, she has a television background and came into this. So Dave Filoni was able to kind of go in and, and pick apart Farrow's brain, Chow's brain, Famuyiwa's brain, while also working on the show and bringing together this creative world and, and these different new worlds that we never got to see in these new characters. And you have Gina Carano who talks about it and Pedro Pascal and all these different directors talk about the, the detail that Dave Filoni, not that Dave Filoni brings to Star Wars and having an answer to every single little thing, every single little detail and prop that comes into place on the set. So I think you're seeing Dave Filoni grow as a director from this, as a live-action director. And so I thought that was really cool to see that. And the different styles, again, Bryce Dallas Howard is somebody who has worked on short films and a documentary. She's directed not really a feature-length film or a feature-length television show. And they say in the roundtable that they really just threw her into the fire and said, we're giving you the most difficult episode to do where it's all this a forest and water and, and background actors and extras, really, and, and basically everything encapsulated into a Star Wars or really a feature-length production that would really be when it comes to Star Wars. So I thought that was really kind of cool to see all these new directors kind of go out of their element and do something different or whether it was somebody like Deborah Chow who was really in her element and was sort of somebody who just came into work every single day took command of the set and got everything done and, and John Favreau commends her for that where he's like you just came on set you knew exactly what you were doing we're gonna do this shot this shot this shot doing this amount of time and, and exact date and time for what we're gonna do everything which gets me really excited for the Obi-Wan show because hearing the way that Jon Favreau raves about Deborah Chow, I can see why they gave her every single episode to direct of the Obi-Wan television show. No matter if it's six or eight episodes, it sounds like she knows what she wants on set every single day. And even though there are rewrites of Obi-Wan happening, whatever they give her, she's going to deliver something special with that. And the episodes that she directed were some of my favorites of the entire season. The third episode of The Mandalorian is my favorite episode of the season. Seventh episode is my second favorite alongside the finale episode. So I can't wait to see what she does with Obi-Wan. Hearing Favreau rave about her is incredible. And speaking about Jon Favreau and even Dave Filoni, people who sometimes they write the show and they can be on set and you have showrunners that kind of just sit in the background and sometimes they'll give advice to the directors, but they let the directors do their own thing. And Favreau did that, but at the same time, he delivered pointers and and, and how to execute certain things and, and, and maybe collaborate with the directors on what they should do while also giving them that flair that, that each director brings so they can kind of have their own creative expansions happen on certain episodes. And really what this showed to me is that he is... John Favreau is not just a great director, which he has proven to do with films such as the big films like Lion King, which even though it was an okay film, he did a tremendous job with the direction of that movie, The Jungle Book, even films like Elf, which got him, his it really, really kind of broke him out. Of course, Iron Man, which he did such a great job directing that movie and watching the MCU that he's proven to be a great director, but also a great producer he's turned out to be, and a great showrunner where... Basically, he's kind of in the background helping people out, supporting them. And to me, I've always thought Dave Filoni, 
I've agreed with people where he maybe should have been heading the the Lucasfilm like Kevin Feige, but I think John Favreau is exactly that kind of person. Hearing him, really, he was the the head of this round table in this episode where the directors talked about all those stories and it was around this round table and John Favreau was the moderator for that and he was kind of giving his own experiences of hiring these different people and 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 the amazement he had and what they brought to set and the kind of directors he's looking for in creating the Mandalorian so you could see that he has a great visionary sense creative visionary but he also has a great logical sense a business sense of creating this world and picking the right people to work on different projects and to me that reminded me of not to say that he's george lucas but re- reminded me of somebody who has a mind vision of where star wars can go of running a company and kind of reminded me of, of of a kevin feige in a way where he loves this the world that he's in and developing while also having a great team behind him but he kind of has a vision mind he's had like Kevin Feige's had experience on Marvel movies before the MCU, John Favreau has experience on set, whether it be with Iron Man, Elf, Jungle Book, Lion King, doing this, doing this show. He has an array of going out there and and creating something that's incredible. So I think, not to say again, Kathleen Kennedy is somebody who I think has done a tremendous job as well, and she's a phenomenal producer. She's produced some of the greatest films of all time, or in the last decade or. 20 decades, 20 years plus, really. She's a phenomenal producer, but I think somebody, when we talk about that, of replacing Kathleen Kennedy soon, whenever she leaves, because they're not going to oust her. They're going to have her retire or leave from Lucasfilm on her own terms. But I think if you're looking for somebody to take over the future and kind of the problems that we've had with Kathleen Kennedy when it comes to Lucasfilm and Star Wars and the the firings or the letting goes of the creative differences. John Favreau, somebody who is a creative artistic sense and can work with creative artists and saying, we have to work within this realm, but don't be afraid to add your flair, kind of like Kevin Feige. And that's what I've been declaring. And I know other people have been looking for with Lucasfilm head of creating this universe that doesn't always have to connect to everything, but it has different, it, it, it has thin connective tissues to one another that at least pays homage or at least acknowledges that there is a bigger universe that is connected in some way shape or form in this star wars universe and i felt like there's always unlike the mcu where there's been that connectivity the Star Wars universe sometimes has kind of lacked that and whether you hear about the episode nine script that colin trevorrow wrote or what was happening with lord and miller on solo a star wars story or what could have been with Benoff and Weiss with their film franchise or their ideas for what they want to do with Star Wars and the creative differences. Favreau can go in and do something like that and, and really kind of lead the, the future of, of Star Wars. And I think this episode kind of, whether it was intentional or not, I don't think it was intentional. They show the kind of leader that John Favreau is. And so I'm excited to see what else he delivers because this is really his show. So we're going to see, he's really going to be diving deep into talking about what went into the show, the, the, te- the technological revolutions that went into it over the course of the next episodes. So this really got me excited for learning more about the Mandalorian. And, and I love these behind the scenes docuseries about the makings of all this stuff. And for The Mandalorian, it seemed like it was a very complex production set with everything that was going on that I want to learn more about it. And this first episode 
opening up on the directors really and showcasing the ideas that they brought and what they experienced with the Mandalorian and same thing with Taika Waititi as well before I even go any further talking about how he he was the veteran of them all really when it comes to working on big productions with Thor Ragnarok and then working smaller with Jojo Rabbit he's able to kind of fluidly move in and out of different situations and scenarios and genres and different budget size kind of films whether they're major motion productions or they're more indie films so I think seeing the kind of set that Taika Waititi brought where they had behind the scenes of him kind of goofing around and they were having fun and it was a different vibe but at the same time when it came down to business it was very emotional that he hearkened to the emotional story and the sense of balancing that act and so that really kind of brought something interesting and and is is essential to why probably Taika Waititi is directing a a Star Wars film and it was so funny that once I finished this first episode I saw the news right away that Taika Waititi was directing so it was kind of the stars aligned in that sense of seeing what he was what his experience is like working on Mandalorian he's going to bring that immediately to a motion film to from the Star Wars universe and so this first episode really kind of delivered that. And going back to what I was saying before, talking about Taika, because I just wanted to include him in there talking about all these different directors, that really it, it just kind of it was kind of jumping off point of everyone. There was different cooks in the kitchen, but they all had a singular idea in mind while adding their own visual sense, their own flares, if you will, to each and every single episode that kind of wove them to be the same but at the same time were different in their own sense and nature and that they were their own standalone episodes while still developing this overarching story about a mandalorian and this child aka baby yoda so i thought that was really interesting and to, to see favreau and filoni work on it and to see what's coming in the next few weeks talking about the, the LED projectors that they had on the walls and how the cast had a great experience and the legacy of Star Wars and its influence on this show. It's going to be interesting to see going forward this behind-the-scenes documentary, docu-series really, of what it took to make this phenomenon. And I'm excited about it. And we're getting another episode on Friday because today was, was Monday, May the 4th. They decided to unveil this new show. But kind of like with a lot of new Disney Plus content, Every Friday from now on, it'll be dropping. So we'll get our next episode in just a few days on May 8th. If you guys have watched this Mandalorian docuseries, the first part, first episode, directors, what did you guys think about it? Did it give you a different idea and perspective as a director? Did it give you a different perspective on the way that these major productions are kind of directed and, and imposed with? and their different kind of flair senses. What what did you guys think about this? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts below. And moving on now to the last recap that I want to do for Star Wars, and that is for the series finale of Star Wars, The Clone Wars, the 12th and final episode in this show titled Victory and Death and this was really the closing out, the finale of not just the show, but of this storyline. And basically, it shows Ahsoka and Rex kind of battling their way out of Order 66. And this is going to be a non-spoiler review for anyone that's watching. I'm going to, because there's some, not a lot of shocking things that happen, but the ending of this show 
is really kind of brings everything kind of full circle in this show that that has happened. But basically, I think it really just kind of brings everything to a close for the storyline that started out with the Siege of Mandalore and ended tying into Revenge of the Sith and the overall Star Wars universe. And you see the, the, the aftermath of it with Ahsoka and Rex, and especially for Rex, who has fought the Clone Wars and everything he's known is kind of turned upside down where he has to fight against his brothers and seeing where everything leaves with Darth Maul. And if you've seen the show Rebels and you know that Ahsoka and Rex's journey, that where it goes from here, you know exactly what happens in a sense that you know that they live on in some way, shape, or form, that I think this kind of just brings it to an emotional close. And this was an incredible story arc that Dave Filoni created. And that's why, exactly, talking about John Favreau and Dave Filoni, that they work well hand-in-hand, where Dave Filoni is learning how to be a live-action director and tell bigger-budgeted stories within the Star Wars universe, that John Favreau would be a great head of Lucasfilm, but Dave Filoni can bring that that world of Star Wars that he's learned from George Lucas, that he's learned from Clone Wars and Rebels, that he can kind of bring that that can style of connecting everything together. And he he is a great storyteller where he's he's a great animator and the animation just feels so lifelike and you actually feel like you are watching a movie on a laptop or a television set. It's absolutely remarkable and it feels live action even when it's completely animation through and through. And you see the emotions, you see the 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 plights that these characters are going through. That Dave Filoni just does an incredible job of of delivering an emotional story. And this this last one to close it out really kind of I think delivered for some of the shortcomings that came with the seventh season because there were some shortcomings in the the first few episodes, specifically that middle that that middle storyline with the Sokotanu and the sisters and going to the Pikes. There was some, where is this leading to? And we knew we were going to get something really cool with Maul and and the Siege of Mandalore, but to deliver what he did in delivering a mini-movie, in a sense, a, an, an alternate movie with the, the Revenge of the Sith, I think is is interesting, it's different, and makes you see Revenge of the Sith and, and I think the prequel trilogy in a different light than you would have maybe before this show came out in 2005. Well, when, when Revenge of the Sith came out in 2005 and when this came out in the later 2000s before 2010. And this this show really has been in a lot of people's lives, especially if you're Star Wars fans, and gives you deeper meaning on Episode 3 and Order 66 and the, and the clones as well, where really when we watched Episode 2 and 3 when they came out before the show... We knew about the clones and, and what the Clone Wars really were from the history of the original trilogy when it's talked about, but to see the show kind of go more in depth about the clones and that they're not just soldiers, they're people and they're human beings and with the Jedi and the plights between them and and being a warrior and a general and looking out for people and I, the politics of it all I think was a lot more interesting in the show and brought a, a new depth to the prequel trilogy that wasn't there before. And so I thought Dave Filoni did an incredible job with this action-packed, emotional, did a great job in wrapping up not just this storyline, but the overall storylines in The Clone Wars and really kind of fleshing out more in depth the characters of Rex and Ahsoka. And I'm excited to see, hopefully, if you've seen Rebels, you know where their storylines pick up, but there's books, canon books about Ahsoka's journey 
after Order 66 and where she goes. But hopefully we learn more from whether it is a live-action show that we're getting with Ahsoka Tano with Rosario Dawson that's introduced in the second season of Mandalorian. Whatever happens, I am game for it because Ahsoka from the beginning is somebody that I wasn't really sure about, but over the years, as with has happened with a lot of people, she's become beloved and an incredible character in the Star Wars universe that you think of Luke, Han, Leia, and you also think about during the Clone Wars times, Anakin, Obi-Wan, the Jedi, but up there on the list of beloved people is Ahsoka Tano, and if you've seen Rebels, you know that her story's not going to end, and, and whatever happens in The Mandalorian, I'm interested to see what her life has been like throughout the original trilogy, throughout the the time between Return of the Jedi and The Mandalorian, that five-year gap, what has happened to her, restoring the Jedi Order, does she find out about Luke, what happened, so I think that part of it is very interesting, and Dave Filoni did, again, a, a tremendous job, and even though he's working on his live-action directing and, and creating live-action content, he's learning every single day. It shows in the documentary of The Mandalorian, but what he's able to do in storytelling is unbelievable, and it shows not just in these final four episodes, but even though there have been ups and downs Clone Wars, some of the strongest stuff has been the storytelling, the emotional journeys that we go on with these characters so in-depth. It's incredible, so... Clone Wars, a great way to close it out. I'll miss it, but at the same time, I can't wait for more content. There's something that you can pick up every single time you watch this, and I'll definitely be watching over the next few days. I'll be watching over repeat this four, this this two-hour journey that we got with episode 9 through 12 of The Siege of Mandalore and Revenge of the Sith Order 66. I want to see through and through this journey that we go on with Ahsoka and Rex and the troops and Mole and Bo-Katan and the Mandalorian. So I'm excited about that. I am interested in seeing it again. What did you guys think about it? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts below. And I'll close out the show talking about Star Wars and, and wrapping up May the 4th at the end. But there's two more things that I want to get to today. And again, this is a full recap show. There was so much content, television to get through last night and this morning that I'll save a lot of movie news for tomorrow, but there's just so much television content between Star Wars and there's still more to, to look forward to that every single night over the last few weeks I've had, on Sunday nights at least, The Last Dance and I've had Westworld. So there's still that to recap as well. I'm going to start out with the series finale of Westworld, or not the series finale, but the season finale rather, of Westworld, episode 8 crisis theory this is going to be again a spoiler free or excuse me a, a spoiler heavy discussion for Westworld and what happened this season and how it ties into the future and what Dolores has been doing this entire season what it all means and so I'll start out with a spoiler free review where no spoilers whatsoever, and I'll tell you when to, if you guys are looking to, I'll put down in the comment section of where the the time is for the spoiler review and when it ends so you can come back and listen to the last dance recap that I have. But to start off with a spoiler-free review, to me, this season finale landed landed with a bang. It wasn't a done like, like the season. Some of the episodes of the season has been, especially the last episode wasn't. I liked some of the reveals that happened, but to me it wasn't. Other than the, the Maeve and Dolores fight, the rest of it was okay. Um, there have been some really strong episodes in this season, 
and the finale I think really was one of them that that wraps up certain character storylines in a way really really well while also creating new storylines and new things to look forward to in the seasons to come and kind of with the season two finale of Westworld I was still okay I'm into it I'm interested to see what happens but with this finale I was I can't wait to see what happens in season four and what they have planned because I think it's the creators know that they 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 can't do what they did great in the first season which again that season will be a pinnacle episode season of television it'll be a great it'll be the best season of Westworld I think that they come out with when all is said and done but I think what they had to do in terms of all the multiple timelines and we get some of that here but it's not kind of it's not really as thrown at you as season two was where this was more of a linear narrative and this season finale kind of I think really kind of home bolsters in that that we're gonna get mysteries and new characters and things that we can theorize about but it'll be a more linear told story of things to come which excites me I thought Evan Rachel Wood Dolores' character was great along with Danny Newton who who plays Maeve and Aaron Paul, everyone did did a great job, and there were some storylines that I thought weren't fully developed that do get some development in this season, and maybe they could have done with a, another episode or two to fully flesh those characters out because I thought they did a good job of starting to really flesh those characters out, focusing on them in the first few episodes, but then were sidelined at the middle of the season and then had a really strong ending with their character arcs here, and so, again, it, it was some things that were wrapped up really nicely, really tied into the themes that were talked about with the season when it comes to free will. And it's not just the host, but the humans and and what is free will? Do we have free will? Are our cho- choices our own? Are our actions our, our own? Or is it something that is being controlled? Are we in control? So the, all those themes that were talked about this season and our overarching themes throughout the entire show I thought were done really, really well here, and I thought Vincent Cassell was a great villain with Ciroc, and they do a good job kind of bringing his storyline, not to a close, but really kind of honing in on what his character has been this season. So again, some really great things that I thought were wrapped up nicely here, and some things that were kind of from the beginning of the season to the end of the season, but also setting up, I think, a really interesting season four to come in the next few years, and if I had a guess, we'd probably get the next season of, of Westworld in either 2022, if not the latest 2023, because it takes them a while with the production value of the show between the visual effects and the location scouting and the editing, the immense amount of editing that takes place with these shows. It takes a while, and it's probably a, a years-long filming to get every single episode in, in the incredible locations and the complexity of, of each and every season that goes into it. So I'm excited to see where the future of this show goes. I thought the season finale landed very, very well, not with a dud whatsoever, and puts a nice bow on what has been a, a really roller coaster season. It's There's been some really, really big ups. I thought the beginning of the season was really, really strong. But then at the end, it kind of went a little bit down and, again, sidelined a bunch of characters that I thought needed some more development that had good development but were just sidelined for other things. And then it went back up on a high, and I think it's going to stay on that high until next the next season comes around. So I'm excited to see what happens, and I'm going to get now into a spoiler discussion of 
the Westworld season finale. So right now at the mark that you can stop and pause at is at 35.28 right now. So 35.28, you can stop right now. And I'm going to do a spoiler review right now for Westworld. And the big thing about this, talking about the the overarching of the season about free will and the extermination of the human race and 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 starting an apocalypse has always kind of been the thing with Dolores. And this this episode really focuses in on Dolores's plan and, and what she's been up to because during the season you don't know if you want to root for her or if you wanna if you want to root for Maeve to stop her. You don't know exactly how to feel because Caleb maybe he's a pawn in her game of taking over the human race because when you look at season two, it's all, it, it was all about breaking out of Westworld and and taking the real world for their own and living in the real world and stopping the human race. And so this season is like, well, is Dolores, do we want Dolores to exterminate the human race? And I thought what this episode did beautifully was really kind of showcase that Dolores always had the intention, seem like, of of destroying the world, but destroying the world order that we live in now. And basically tearing down the world, but not killing everyone that's a part of it. Really tearing down the structure like the Westworld structure was tore down in and rebuilding the world back up into a beautiful image of people experiencing their own worlds and experiencing their own beauty. And and that scene where Maeve and Dolores are talking about their ideals and Del- and Maeve is looking into Dolores's mind it's it's a beautiful emotional scene that I got really emotional in because it's really the end of Dolores's arc as we know it right now and it kind of brings her arc full circle of she's somebody that started out as a preacher's not a preacher's daughter but a farmer's daughter somebody who was a sweet girl that was taken advantage of by people that were guests in the park and she talks about how there I was always mistreated poorly, but there were scenes, and it goes back to scenes in West in the first season of Westworld where she sees the serenity and everything, and the peace and the beauty of it. And she talks about I don't see the it may seem like I see the bad in everybody, and I had two different directions. I could have exterminated the human race, or I could see the beauty in the human race and help free them, like we were free. And how we were be were free from our structure, and that we were able to have our own free will. So I thought that sense of it was just absolutely beautiful and poetic, and really I thought brought Dolores's arc full circle, in which Caleb was a part of her game, but it wasn't about the game of destroying the human race. That he was going to be a leader in rebuilding the race and being able to choose. And I thought showcasing that Dolores has always seen Caleb. And, and knows really who he is. And even though it's not really her plan, maybe per se, to always bring him in, but the fact that he was, he came up to her and the fact that she knew who he was and that he was able to choose for himself and not follow in order and break the order, I thought was really, really well done and really brings Caleb to be a series regular in this and take that mantle from Dolores. And to see her mind erased and and wiped out and to see that happen, it it was heartbreaking that the last few memories she had left are ones of peace and serenity in this world. And so I thought that was emotional and heartbreaking to see 
this might have been the last time we see Evan Rachel Wood because the thing is, is that her, we could say, well, is she really dead? But at the same time, if she comes back, let's say if there's another skin model of Dolores because at the beginning of the episode, Caleb saves the, the Dolores Pearl but there's a but there's a new there, there's another robot of Dolores and so but he's able to, to keep that personality of Dolores that was in that that has been around since the beginning so there could be another prototype of Dolores laying around but that personality of Dolores is gone there's going to be a new Dolores that is or at least the Evan Rachel Wood Dolores that is around so I, I, that to me is very interesting to see what happens maybe there's a backup in the sublime that Dolores hid a, ca- a copy of herself within the sublime that Bernard is now going to and that that was another thing that it made sense when when because in the, throughout the season the thing with Sorak is that in order to balance his world he needs the sublime he needs the information that's in Dolores's head and then we find out that she doesn't have that information and that the reason she created Bernard was not really to stop her but was to to protect the the world that that hosts the host with within the forge and that he has the key to it all and so i thought that was a great arc that started out at the very end of season two it worked its way through this season and that maybe a copy of dolores is in the sublime and bernard finds it and the ending of the season finds him looking through the sublime and finding the answer that can stop the apocalypse and help the human race and help the host as well and so i thought that was really really interesting and then we talk about Sirak and we talk about what happens with with him. But the w- one thing I want to talk about too is that we also have the, the Charlotte Hale Dolores, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But going back to the Sirak angle real quick, where I, I thought he was a tremendous villain because he thought what he was doing was the right thing about creating this world that that dictated who would live, who would die, and that everyone had a, a role to play. But... Now I'm interested to see because Soraka is wounded by the end of this this season, but we it doesn't seem like he's dead at any point, and, I, and I'm happy that he's not because I think that's another interesting angle to work off of with Soraka that now that he doesn't have this 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 machine to tell him what to do because another plot twist that happened that I was interesting is that all this all these things that Soraka was saying Soraka was doing was from Rehoboam that really he had an earpiece within himself that Rehoboam was giving him the dialogue on what to say. So he's been relying on machines from the very beginning. So what happens now that he doesn't have the control that he has on people and he doesn't have that that control and that guidance that he always had throughout the season and throughout his life. So I think that's an interesting angle to have Ciroc be in and for Vincent Cassell. And so I really did enjoy this this season finale again and the, the emotional arcs of Maeve teaming up with Caleb now and that she's gonna really going to be taking over and and she's on the sides of, of helping this world out now before reuniting with her daughter. So I, I, I'm interested to see how that leads off of season four and really where other character arcs go. And speaking of some of the character arcs, going to some of the things that I thought really weren't done that well. Bernard, I thought, was really sidelined in the second half of this season. I thought the finale-wise, they gave him a really good ending to his arc, but they kind of just really sidestepped him from the from episode four on, really. They really just kind of put him in the corner and waited till, till this episode to give him something meaningful to do that hopefully carries on to next season. And 
the same thing happened with William as well, where I just think the writers didn't really know what to do with William anymore in this world, and, and now that he's not the man in black, what do we do with him? And I thought it was cool to kind of give him the sense of, I'm my own person now, and, and all these personalities are me, I'm the good guy, I'm going to stop the host. I thought that was interesting, but it was nothing that was going to stick, and he, and he was just the same person that was in Westworld, and you could see that when he's, and it was cool to see him go from the man in white to the man in black, and he's killing everybody, and he's looking to stop the host, but there was just something missing. I think Ed Harris saw that, and I just, I wasn't a fan of it. I just felt like they were just kind of juggling what to do with Ed Harris, but I thought the ending of this season where they put his character was great, and basically, they kill him off. They kill William, in which the there were two post-credit scenes, and this one was with Ed Harris, and basically, they kill William off and replace him with a host version of William, which kind of ties into that season two post-credit scene where he's in that containment unit that he had Delos in, and which his daughter's telling him, like, oh, I'm giving you the, the litmus test of what it is to be a host, and it seems like he is a host. He doesn't know what he's doing, so the, the post-credit scene in season three ties into that season two post-credit scene with William in which... Really, it seems like th- this version of Dolores that that is in Charlotte now has evolved and is really her own person now. And she, kind of like where Dolores told me if she had two options where it was to kill off the entire human race and put copies of herself or copies of hosts around the world and, and have it be a host world, or you help tear down the world and save the human race, basically. And so it seems like Del- this version of Dolores in Charlotte is taking that first approach where it's, I want to kill off the human race. It's going to be filled with hosts. And so I thought like, that angle is very interesting and to have William just kind of be a host now. It's just going to be man- the man in black. That personality of a host I think is very interesting and leaves off in a very good angle of where they can go with William, this host version of William, and have him kind of just be this this man in black, this killer that has that mindset. So I think they gave William some, or this host version of William, some extra juice going forward in the show for Ed Harris to kind of sink his teeth into while also delivering something for Tessa Thompson to dive into as well. So there's new things for these hosts, for these characters to do that. Maybe they they were kind of just juggling around what to do with this season to get to this point. So I'm excited to see where it leads off for season four. And then of course, the very last, the last scene is with Bernard and, he was in the Sublime, it seems like, for at least a few years. He's dusty, and, and the hotel room that he's in with Stubbs was, is all run down now. So it could be more of a of an apocalyptic view that is being sensed right now in the world that Bernard was looking for answers, and he seems like he finally found them. So what, what kind of answers did he find that's going to help the world now in this apocalyptic setting of view? So it sets up a lot of interesting things going forward in this show that I was really into and I was excited about and I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for season four and this is the end of the spoiler talk right now so at 46.37 that is the end of the spoiler talk right now so I'll put it down in the description of the episode when I post it of where the episode began and where the or the spoiler review began and where it ends so you guys aren't spoiled if nobody has seen the episode yet you guys aren't spoiled from this talk but overall guys spoiler non-spoiler what did you guys think about this season finale of Westworld did you like it was it a, a good ending to an up and down season that had 
a really great start in eh middle, but landed really, really well and has some exciting things to look forward to in Season 4 when it comes out in the next few years. What did you guys think about it? Let me know down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts. And the final point of topic today, guys, in terms of my recap episode is the recap of the latest editions of The Last Dance, which showcased episode 5 and 6 last night and really kind of, to me personally, was my favorite episodes of the show so far. I thought when you look at the first two episodes and three and four, they did a great job of going behind the scenes of of the main characters of MJ in the first episode, Scottie Pippen in the second, Dennis Rodman in the third, and Phil Jackson in the fourth. And we got some really interesting background, broad things about these people, about how they contributed to the 98, 97, 98 team, but to the Bulls teams in general. But this episode, to me, really delved deep into the dynamic of that 97-98 Chicago Bulls team, whereas the first four episodes were kind of scratching the surface with the with the footage that was filmed by NBA Entertainment. But this episode really went in deep with with footage from the players on the team to it really starts off with that NBA All-Star game where we're in the locker room and they're all just kind of BSing and MJ goes into the locker room with Larry Bird. It was just so cool to see. And so we got more of an in-depth look from the team through that footage, but we also kind of got more of the Michael Jordan persona. And, and this episode was really about the the Jordan brand that exploded after, during the late 80s into the 90s, really. And how Michael Jordan became this, not just a superstar on the court, but a superstar off the court. And he was the biggest name in the world at that time period. And the, the first episode really talks about the, the dream team and how really Michael Jordan, that 92 Olympic team, changed the way that sports and the NBA was and basketball was perceived overseas in that Everyone wanted to be like these superstars that were on this team and, and really kind of helped bolster and set up a pillar that we know today to be the, the Euro League and, and and incredible teams, international teams that are around today. And we have players like Giannis Antetokounmpo, Luka Doncic, Kristaps Porzingis, Yao Ming. We have all these incredible international stars, and it started out because of that 1992 dream team where internationally basketball took off and skyrocketed because of the popularity of that. And you see the relationship between Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan and the 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 the, the, the tension between Isaiah Thomas and not being part of that dream team and having that really, really cool kind of scrimmage game between Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, and all them, and it was competitive, but they would just laugh it off and and they would all just have a good time, and they bonded over that. So I thought that was really cool. And in the the first episode, it kind of juxtaposed that to in 1998 in that All Star game. Michael Jordan is the is the old timer. He's the he's the the groomed veteran. Whereas in the 1992 Dream Team, he's he's the the young cat. Where where Magic and Larry Bird were kind of the the old school guy. So I thought that was a really cool dichotomy and just a position that was featured. And then, of course, we get to, even in the beginning of the episode, it's the, the episode five is really dedicated to Kobe Bryant. And it's really, it was filmed before his death, before it even happened. And the director, Justin Ayers, says that, Jason Ayers says that 
the 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 episode was finished a few days before the tragedy happened and so to hear kind of what he says about Michael and how they were brothers and he learned from him he would always kind of he was like a mentor to to, to Kobe and to hear it from from Kobe's perspective and knowing everything that happened it, it was very heartbreaking to watch and I didn't think just added to the sadness and the tragedy of what happened to to him his daughter and everyone else that was aboard that fateful flight that happened at the end of of January of this year so that that was a little hard to watch but then the rest of the episode is really about that Jordan brand about Gatorade and and Air Jordan and Nike and and how the the brand of Michael Jordan really exploded onto the, the onto the seams and it was interesting hearing about Spike Lee and that even in the, in the 90s that everyone went to go see Jordan especially during that 97 98 season celebrities went out to go such as Jerry Seinfeld you had Drew Barrymore Prince everyone went to go out and see Michael Jordan whenever they could John Cusick at a young age went to go see him that the uh, the Atlanta Stadium the dome sold out when Jordan was went there at the last time that he would be there and so I it just was incredible to see that no other athlete was able to do what Michael Jordan did and I think it shows why he's the goat not just for his competitive tenacity or his extraordinary athletic play but also the way that he was able to really revolutionize the player brand and everyone that's kind of has a brand now is able to do all these different deals for different people it all really started with Michael Jordan and and really kind of being his own personal brand that he was a walking money machine and and he was always looking to excuse me to score deals that were in the best interest for him but then what it also got into was the downside of everything, especially I love the way that, that this episode showcased the media's relationship with Michael Jordan, that it's really true with, with any media, what whatever you're into, it's always about, it, it's about the, this, this knight in shining armor, and it's, it's always that you're looking for some kind of dirt, and that the armor is so shiny that there's got to be something that is a little dirty on it and that anybody would look for anything to to talk about and it talks about the that there was a book written the Jordan rules about that Jordan was a tyrant and then it talks about during that 1993 NBA playoffs against the New York Knicks in which after game 2 he went to Atlantic City and was gambling and or it was after game 1 and during that time in New York he was gambling, and he went to AC, and he was playing the slots and, and, and hanging in the casinos, and people were wondering if he had a gambling addiction and that really anybody was looking for something to to put to this person. And I think it's a great look at the media and players and sports and and that you always, especially for Michael Jordan, that almost for 24 hours a day, he was always this personality and that... The only time he got maybe some peace and quiet was the few hours before the camera crews rolled in, and, and once he hit the elevators, he was MJ. He was he was somebody that people looked up to, and that and that it really just he was playing a part, and that it wasn't just him. So I loved how it really dove in deep about the racial issues with Michael Jordan in terms of being somebody that that was a a political advocate, a social advocate. And he really wasn't about that. He was just about playing sports. And and so I thought that was just incredible stuff to really gain insight to and to also see how he was as a teammate and playing golf and betting on golf and 
and drinking beer after the game and, and just hanging out with the guys, smoking cigars. I, I thought that was so incredible. And that, that's the kind of insight that I've wanted from the show. And the first four episodes are incredible and, and insightful. But this really, to me, dug in deep into the nails of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls during that era, during the 90s, and specifically the 97-98 team, and what he meant to the other players as an icon, as a brand, to other people, I thought was just so incredibly insightful that, to me, this these were so far my favorite two episodes of the show so far. There's still two more weeks, which is crazy to think of, of the show to go, that it could get even better, so we have 7 and 8 coming up on Sunday. I'm really excited about it, so... To me, these were my favorite episodes of The Last Dance so far. What did you guys think about them? Let me know anything down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts below. And the last thing I want to talk about, guys, is I hope everyone is is having a great day. It's, it's where I am. It's sunny out. A little bit of clouds, but it's still sunny out. But hope everyone is having a great Star Wars day, a May 4th, and especially during these time periods with COVID-19 and, 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 and sheltering in place. There's, there, you always want to find the bright spots and things, and even though you can't go out and do stuff today, Star Wars Day is a day of celebration, and, and if you're a Star Wars fan, it's a great day to just take your mind off of things, explore Star Wars content that's on Disney+, Plus, where Disney put a lot of its focus with the Mandalorian docuseries, the series finale of Clone Wars, putting the Rise of Skywalker on Disney+, Plus two months early before it was initially sent to debut on the streaming service. It's just incredible Star Wars content to look at. So even if you're a mild fan, a, a total in-depth fan of the the genre, uh, you can just appreciate what Star Wars was also able to do for generations of people and what it's still doing today to this very day. So it's a day of celebration, and especially in these times, it's just something to take your mind off of. And that's what Star Wars has been able to do for so many decades is just transport you to a world, to a galaxy where you don't have to worry about anything at all in that you can take your mind off of watching a show or watching a movie for a few hours or for 30 or so minutes and just transporting yourself to a different area of, or universe that you don't have to think of things that are happening in your life or things that are happening in the in the life around you really so i think that's what is really i think poignant and special about this may the 4th and this star wars day especially that it just shows the power of of cinema, it shows the power of of geekdom, it shows the power of fans, but it also shows the power of what Star Wars has always brought and what the galaxy far, far away has done for many people. But guys, that's going to do it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in onto the Ambiguous Network, and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on the network, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out Goal Driven Professionals, geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out our brand new show that is on the Ambiguous Network, The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, give you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. You can check them out on the website, ambiguousproduction.com, also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Kennedy Treehouse, use the coupon code Ambiguous. And once you're all done following those social media accounts on the Ambiguous Network, make sure when you ever have you have the time and chance and day to check them out, check me out on social media. On Twitter, you can check me out on at Bissell Samuel on Twitter. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And on Facebook at Sam Bissell. Guys, thank you so much again for tuning in to this special edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast, Star Wars Day. And until next time, 
Keep on screening. Have a wonderful Star Wars day. And as always, may the fourth be with you.